Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadjassad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. Now, if this is the first time you've listened to this podcast, thanks for trying something new. But I'm just going to be clear. Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists. You can find our work all over the internet. In fact, I'm going to ask Ben to plug a couple of his publications, and then I'll follow up because I guess that's what we do. Ben, go for it. You can find my work at Motor Trend, Automobile Magazine, Driving Line, and Haggerty Classic Car. Very cool. And you can find most of my work at autotrader.ca, as well as Nouveau Magazine and Motor Illustrated. Now, Ben, we have another special thing to plug, so why don't you go ahead and and do it? Sure. Well, this episode of the Unnamed Automotive Podcast is being brought to you by my graphic novel, which is called Code 45. Uh, If you go to code-45.com, you can find our Kickstarter campaign. We've been picked up by Scout Comics to be published later this year, but until that happens, we have to pay for all of the art and the printing and all that fun stuff that comes with making an independent comic book. Our book is about a woman who's a metro driver here in Montreal who starts hearing rumors that there are dragons in the tunnels that are terrorizing the night shift, and she gradually falls into this world where she can't tell what's real and what's not and how it ties into a dark secret about her family's past. So if you go to code-45.com, you can find our Kickstarter page, which the campaign starts on March 3rd, or you can go on Facebook, Code45Comic, and find a whole bunch of cool blog posts I've been doing about what it's like to create an independent comic book. Very cool. We don't really ask our listeners to support us uh, in any other episode, so I think this is a great way that uh, our listeners can can give back and uh, can check something out uh, that's really interesting. And uh, a lot of hard work went into it, right, Ben? Yeah, and if you love comics, I mean, or if you love comics that necessarily don't follow the same kind of superhero trend that you've been seeing a lot lately, uh, this is something that might interest you. Very cool. Now let's jump right back into the car side of things. I've got a new SUV to talk about. Well, not really that new, but um, it's a it's a vehicle that we're already a little familiar with. It's called the Honda Passport. This came out um, about a year ago. It's a two-row SUV that is somehow marketed towards like the lifestyle brand. It's supposed to be a little bit off-road oriented, something that would maybe compete with a Grand Cherokee or maybe a Subaru Outback. But the best way to describe it is it's a pilot without the third row. Exactly. It's a truncated pilot, right? This is It's the same platform. It's a little bit smaller. So it's, it falls into the same family of vehicles as both the pilot and the Ridgeline. Which is really weird to describe it in this manner because it's more expensive than a pilot. What? <laughs> in the U.S., it's more expensive than a pilot by about uh, 250 bucks. In the base model? Yes. What? So what's the reason for that? I really – I'm not 100% – Certain, especially because in the U.S. you can get a passport with front-wheel drive, which is is another weird decision by Honda. I I, want to make sure. So I'm getting less SUV for more money? Yeah. I mean, finally, right? Like, finally, (laughs) that's happening. I've been asking for that for my entire life. That's right. You have, actually, 100%. It's a very – I mean, I don't understand the the, – I don't understand this, that decision at all. Uh, the Pilot, on the other hand, is a vehicle that feels a little dated on the road sometimes. It doesn't feel as good as some of the other um, three-row crossovers that have currently hit the market. You and I are both pretty fond of the new Telluride and Palisade. Yes. So I need to I need to 
jump into the passport in this situation now, it doesn't feel as dated as the uh, pilot does. In fact, there are many times that the pilot just feels like a minivan, and I don't have that experience with the passport. So there is a bit of a personality difference than just a, a smaller pilot. Do you think it's very it's weight? Do you think it's interior, the way the interior is designed? Do you think it's equipment? Like what's, I, I'm assuming they have the same engine, right? They do have the same engine, which is a 3.5 liter V6. Uh, sorry, I had the, I had the information in front of me, but I always get a little. I think it's you know what two hundred ninety horsepower or something like it's that. It's actually it's two hundred and eighty horsepower okay. and two hundred sixty two pound feet of torque. I don't think it's the engine, and I definitely do not think it's the interior. In fact, I think maybe the interior is potentially the worst part of the passport, and I'll get to that in a second. I think it's maybe the ride height, which is it's a taller vehicle than the um, pilot. This thing is over six feet tall. Um, it is the, the sort of ruggedness that comes with this added, uh, ride height, the added suspension travel, and it might be the weight that makes it feel a little bit more substantial, a little bit, it literally does feel tougher than a pass, than a pilot. And I think that's a really weird thing to describe, but I think if that was the goal for Honda, they've achieved it. They made a tougher pilot in the so, passport. So, so if you're looking at the Honda website and you're like, Okay, this thing's a little bit more expensive than a pilot, but I'm getting, you know, one fewer row. I'm getting maybe access to less technology. I'm not sure. But when you're comparing it to other automakers, what Mm -hmm. is this up against? So Honda will pit it against the Grand Cherokee, which I don't think is a very smart move by them because the Grand Cherokee is available with a couple of different powertrains, not to mention – More than a couple. SRT SRT models, right? Like really exciting models. You can get like available in four or five engines, I think, for that vehicle. Yeah. And they're available in different trim levels, which really change the personality of the car in each um, situation, right? There's like base models are totally good for the the run of the mill commuting. And then you can get Trailhawk versions, which are really, you know, sort of rugged. You can get um, ones that look really menacing, like the Limited X that we talked about. We can talk about the really high contented versions of the vehicle um and then you get those trackhawks or srt models which are also completely bonkers it does seem like you're you're punching up right with when you when you pitch it against this now i personally i wanted to take a look at something a little bit more mainstream but also um not not exactly uh like off-road oriented but like off-road capable and i and i taught i i tried driving it back-to-back with the Subaru Outback. And I think we're going to talk about this maybe next week when you've had a chance to drive the Outback and we can compare notes. But there are certain things that make the Passport just feel... You know, when I'll, when, I'll, when you talk about the Outback, there's, there's sometimes when you go, oh, this just feels like a car that is a little bit taller. That means it's really approachable, it's easy to drive, it's, it gets out of the way... But the Passport does not feel like that. It definitely feels like an SUV in the most, um, like, straight up, it just, that feeling. That means that it's a little less responsive. It's got a little bit more lean. It makes it, you'll have so much wind noise when you're driving on the highway. It's not exactly fuel efficient. And it's not exactly, it just feels a little bit more, just rugged. It, it feels, and that's a, that's a tr- tough thing to to describe because sometimes ruggedness will feel like maybe more Spartan than the regular um, experience or, you know, do you know what I'm, do you know what I'm trying to well, say It basically here? kind of sounds like Honda's trying to sell you an image with the passport. Absolutely. And I think 
they've matched that image with a little bit of the driving style. So I, I'm okay with the look of the vehicle, which is, you know, taller, taller passport, taller, stouter passport. Sorry, pilot. Ooh, this is not going well. Taller, stouter pilot. Um, and there's a ton of space inside the vehicle because they got rid of that third row and there's so much cargo space. But if you're using this as sort of like your daily commuter or maybe a family vehicle, you've got to also deal with the fact that it's a taller vehicle. That means loading things into the trunk. It's quite a, a, a high carryover height. Um, and I took this on a road trip and it's something that was definitely noticeable every single time you would try to put something in there. You know, if you have a heavy luggage, for example, you got to toss it a little bit higher up. Um, and then the, sorry, go ahead. Well, I just saying I'm on the site right now trying to build it and the trim packages, it's adventure package A through C and then urban package A and C with no B. <laughs> so it's, what? yeah. So it's on which model on the passport. I'm on it right now. Wait, there, I don't have this. I have sport EXL touring and elite. No, once you get below that, like just pick sport. And then if you go yeah. down, there's all these packages. Yes. And the okay. packages add a whole bunch of stuff that's meant to like kind of butch up your truck. Like you can add – it gives you – And it looks like pretty cool, doesn't it? Fender flares and running boards. But if you're more urban, according to Honda, then you want spoilers like on, <laughs> yes. up top and below. Um, yeah, but I, I just wanted to check because you can spend as much as $43,000 on this vehicle. Oh, man. You can spend a lot of money on this car. It's, it's unbelievable. I, I'm so surprised that they have made this vehicle cost as much as it does. It doesn't seem – appropriate because especially the interior did not impress me and i drove the top of the line elite model with um all-wheel drive that's a forty-three thousand dollar truck um it had that wireless phone charger it had ventilated seats it had a heated steering wheel it had um an adaptive cruise control that did not bring the car to a complete stop and would not operate at under i think 30 kilometers an hour which is kind of um, it, it feels kind of archaic now. I had a, you know, there's something I did not mention, um, on the last podcast and that's, I had a scary experience with the adaptive cruise control in the forerunner. Uh, like you're saying when you, it, it would not bring the vehicle to a complete stop. What happened is when it got below a certain speed, it just cut off. Yeah. It cut off completely and it goes bloop bloop no more and and like yeah. I was behind somebody when this happened who was slowing down and I had to jam on the brakes so as not to hit them. If you have an adaptive cruise control system that's not full range at this point, that's not safe. No, it, it actually it's it, it kind of lulls you into a sense of security that you think the car is handling um, a little bit of your your commuting duties, and it isn't. It is no. Not, it is like you oh, this is the problem. You're on turn. guard. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's so funny that uh, we're realizing just how quickly technology like adaptive cruise control has um, changed. And it's reached us a point where we're comfortable with it, which is when it has that stop and go technology or the, the ability to bring a car to a complete stop. And if it doesn't have that now, it's almost it's worse. It's way worse. Right. Yeah. Um, do you, so take a look at the, I'm, I, I now understand what you're talking about. These urban packages and venture packages. They're pretty cool looking like. With the amount of um, accessories you can add to the vehicle, I'm pretty impressed by Honda for wanting to do this. And this is also just beefs up the the price of the vehicle. Oh yeah, you, mine is almost the one I built now is at forty seven thousand six hundred dollars, and that's a lot yeah. of money to spend on a not on not a pilot. <laughs> you know, like. and 
And as I mentioned, the interior, not not ex- exceptional in terms of uh, design. It's a very drab interior. Um, infotainment system, small infotainment screen um, with just one knob, which is for the volume. And I know we've ragged on Honda for not having knobs, and everyone kind of got excited when they added a single knob. But that means that changing radio stations is a pain in the butt, too. Like, you got to jam on the screen a bunch. Of, you got to tap on the screen a bunch of times. Yeah, I'm not a fan of that. Um, then you've got this, uh, gauge, con- this gauge cluster, which is absolutely, it's, it, it seems almost like an afterthought. It's three little, uh, sorry, one main screen, which is about the same size as your cell phone. Um, and that's pretty much what it looks like. It's a screen, uh, which has the information about your, your, your tack or your, uh, speedometer and it looks really out of place and this is really bizarre because earlier this year earlier this month i had driven the crv and it has a very cleverly dis uh, uh cleverly laid out uh gauge cluster with the with the you know it, it's kind of like segmented into pods it looks really it looks cool and for the passport which is a brand new vehicle which is much more expensive to not have that kind of attention to detail um is kind of disappointing i, I guess it's maybe because it's not really a brand new vehicle I mean, this is something that was based off of an existing vehicle. It's a new nameplate. And right. it was probably cost-effective and inexpensive to just get it out so that it's different enough. I mean, it's it's going to be quite different from the from the CRV already just mm-hmm. because of its size and platform. But they they all they needed to do was differentiate it somewhat from the Pilot and then they're fine. I mean, this is what we're seeing in the SUV market. It's just endless divisions of the same platforms over and over. Car companies are trying so hard to extend it to every niche and suck up as many dollars as they can. And I mean, that's what business is. I don't have a problem with that. But in terms of like building an interesting vehicle, it's a lot harder to do that when that's your mandate. Absolutely. Um, I will admit, if this sounds like I'm really ragging on the on the passport, I will admit it has some pretty smart things going for it. This thing has so much space inside of it, um, not just in terms of cargo space, but in terms of interior passenger like at hand storage in fact on the driver's side or the front row passengers uh, on their door panel the front door panels there are like three shelves which is unheard of in my opinion of places to put either your wallet or um i don't know if you have like a paper map or instructions or tickets to something it is just there is so much space on just the door panel alone what if you have like a stolen treasure map printed on the scalp of a pirate where would you put that yeah there's definitely a space for that at least a space for maybe three skulls that would fit in the uh, scalp i don't know what kind of maniac you think i am (laughs) i thought i thought it was on a skull how would you a pirate skull Pirate scalp. All right, let's scalp. move on. This is getting, no. we're, well, we're getting in the weeds the here on, on, the... on treasure maps. <laughs> yeah, I think there's plenty of space for all of that. There's also an under space, uh, an under tray storage area in the trunk as well. So I'm really impressed with how Honda has made this thing. It, like I said, it really does seem if you're that sort of buyer who's looking for an adventure style vehicle, this thing might be able to do the trick with all these little secret compartments for hiding stuff or placing stuff in your car it seems like something that you can almost live out of so that's your your audience then for this car is people who (laughs) kind of want an adventure like look don't really want uh the dealing with a rough and rugged vehicle and they maybe want to live in their car (laughs) i'm telling you it's it's impressive i will say the nine-speed automatic uh is a bit um it's a bit slow 
The V6 never felt like it was going to do anything in a hurry. It's a very um, smooth engine, but just it's not the sort of thing that's going to impress anybody. Uh, and then that comes after driving something like the the V6 or even the V8 in a Grand Cherokee as well, or even the turbocharged four-cylinder that's in the four, uh, the Outback XT. So there are better powertrains in this segment. There's better interiors in this segment, but... In terms of packaging, in terms of space, I think the passport is pretty solid in that in that regard. But you're paying a lot for it. Okay. So, uh, do you have anything else you want to add about the passport? No, I think that's it. Um, I'm pretty happy with, with that assessment, to be honest. I, I I've never felt so um, so complete as a human being. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you for helping me get that off my chest. Okay. Well, so uh, I drove a vehicle that is also designed to move people, but it's old school in the sense that you don't really see many of them on the road anymore. And I'm talking about the 2020 Toyota Sienna. Uh, uh, a minivan, Sammy. I know you're already excited, but wait, let right. me finish. It's the SE trim, which is supposed to be kind of sporty, I think, in terms mm-hmm. of appearance. And the model I drove was even more sporty because it had the nightshade package. Which blacks everything out, and you get a mesh grill up front, and you get a spoiler and mirror caps, and everything is just black everywhere. And uh, I have to admit, I had some people tell me it looked pretty good. Um, <laughs> I love, I love that experience. That people, I don't know if people think it looks good or if it looks good for a minivan. Like, what is that? I don't. What know. is that? It, I mean, it was only seven. It's only seven hundred dollars on top of the price of the minivan. But I have to tell you. The the SC so the, the there's the SC and the SC Premium I believe I was in the Premium that's with this nightshade package you're at forty five thousand dollars oh my god what yes the Sienna is super expensive and I'm I'm just gonna say it almost every minivan except for the Dodge Caravan the Grand Caravan which is hanging around is expensive last generation product anyways like- yeah the, the Sienna. The base model is thirty one grand, and you can spend like all the way up to fifty thousand dollars on the limited premium, which comes with all wheel drive. Still, the only minivan in the segment to have all wheel drive. Uh, Actually, so, that's not true. Oh, it's, um, Pacifica is is for twenty twenty uh, or twenty twenty one now has all wheel drive, which is brand new. It just came out at the Chicago Auto Show. Okay, so there's so one it com- finally has one competitor. There's a competitor. Okay, uh, that, so anyway, back to the Sienna. <laughs> uh, it does everything you would expect a minivan to do. I mean, it has a ton of room inside. And here's how much room it has. You know, everyone who buys an SUV, a lot of people who buy an SUV do it because they feel they need the cargo space. They need to haul stuff. They want to take 4 by 8s home from Home Depot. All sorts of stuff like that. You will never beat a minivan for interior room. Ever. Absolutely. Period. Agreed. I had a um, a radiator for my LS swap in my Jeep, a full-size uh, electric fan to go with it and some other parts for the vehicle. I put them in the back of the Sienna standing upright behind the third row seat, which was completely upright as well. Like I didn't fold it down and the, the cargo well in the back is so deep. It worked. It worked fine. I mean, you cannot, there's not a single SUV on the market where I could have done that. That is unbelievable. I, I, you need to repeat this again. This is third behind the third row with the seats up. Yeah. You can fit, all of that stuff. All that stuff nope. standing straight up. I, and I mean like on its edge. So like a, you know how big a radiator is for a V8 engine. Put <laughs> yeah. that in a box covered with like all of the foam and stuff that's intended to protect it. And yeah. it still had vertical clearance. So it's a very, very useful vehicle. I, it's also expensive though. I mean I, I keep coming back to that. And 
when you're inside the vehicle, you don't really get a premium experience. Um, it had leather seats, I guess. <laughs> Okay. Uh, it had some of the switch gear that I'd had in the Forerunner the week before, so it wasn't very advanced looking. Um, mm-hmm. It didn't feel luxurious, but it had heated seats. It had I, I didn't have adaptive cruise control at a, at forty five thousand dollars, which is kind of wow. crazy to me. Yeah, um, I, I had mean, some automakers are putting adaptive cruise control as like almost standard technology in yeah. in. $20,000 cars. Um, it comes with a, a, a V6 engine. It's a three and a half liter. And I think it's pretty much the same power as the Passport we were just talking about. It's okay. like in that 280, 290 horsepower range. It drove pretty nice. Uh, it was comfortable. It had enough get up and go. The um, fuel mileage wasn't great because it's a big vehicle. It's heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also notice that when you're driving it around. I mean... There were. I've been living in the city a long time, and I've owned a lot of large vehicles. Humble brag, but when it came to parallel parking the Sienna, there were spots that I probably could have fit into where I was just like, "It's not worth it." <laughs> like I right. kept going, and that's rare. Like I don't often feel that way uh, about a vehicle in in, in an urban setting. Full size pickup trucks are the same, mm-hmm. but um, that, that kind of surprised me with the Sienna. That actually is a very surprising thing because uh, a lot of the uh, appeal to crossovers is that they're supposed to feel like they're they're car like, and I've always thought that minivans have had pretty um, l- like in terms of visibility and drivability, they've always been pretty approachable. But now that I guess we've experienced so many crossovers or car like vehicles or cars that are or, or vehicles that are based on car platforms. Minivans are showing kind of their compromise. Well, I mean, minivans, I, I, it's, it's not a car-like experience. I mean, no. Not at all. It's, it's very large. It's very long. Uh, the seating position is different. Uh, but it has things that you, like I said earlier, you can't get in an SUV. We talked about the cargo space. If you fold mm-hmm. those seats down, it's absurd. I mean, you're beating a Suburban. This is no question. But it also has power doors. Um, oh, yeah. Inside, the power sliding doors. So if, you're, if your hands That's luxury. are full... Yeah, if your hands are full and you have the remote in your hand somehow, you can open the doors at the touch of a button, and it's very easy to do. One thing that I didn't like about the vehicle, again, and I'm going to complain about the price point, $45,000, I did not have keyless entry. So I could not walk up to the driver's door and open it. I had to unlock it every time with the remote. I know that doesn't sound like, oh, no, his royal highness had to use the remote. But I'm just talking about almost every other vehicle at this price point is going to allow you to have remote keyless entry. In fact, the Forerunner I was driving had remote keyless entry, I believe. Oh, man. So, uh, okay. Uh, I, I want to talk about sliding doors. I don't think people really understand just how great sliding doors are. Is, is sliding doors a luxury or a convenience? Is it like – what is it that makes them – well, I don't so think sliding great. doors are a luxury. I mean, they've been around since, I don't know, Power 50, sliding 60 doors years. are a luxury. Power They're sliding doors, maybe. But sliding doors in general are just great when you have kids. Because um, if you have a kid mm-hmm. and you're parked tight somewhere and you open your door and they open their door, you're cut off from them. Right. Uh, if you open your door and they use a sliding door, you can get at your child, get them out of a car seat. It's It's a lot easier to do in a tight parking space. And it's also just gives you that much more access to the vehicle when you're loading cargo or kids. So if you want to put a car seat in, you don't have to deal with this door that's hanging off just to your left or to your right at all times. It's like everything's out of the way and you have this great big open space. If possible, do you think every car could have should have sliding doors? I think that's the I think that's something a madman would say, Sammy. I don't I don't think that that's desirable I whatsoever. So. I think that'd be great. You want to live every, in this sliding every, door utopia? 
Yeah, I, if we can find a way to conveniently make all doors slide, that'd be cool. Um, now, the Sienna's one of the big things about the Sienna is that it's available all-wheel drive. Now, I don't think you drove the all-wheel drive model. No, it was a front-wheel drive model. Again, $45,000. Yeah, that's $45,000, £4,600 curb weight, which is massive. Well, I mean, it's about the same as a a Dodge Charger, right? Like, it's not... It's not really not crazy. A Charger is like forty two, forty three hundred, I think. Holy cow! <laughs> That's off the top of my head. If there are any Charger owners out there who want to correct us, just just write us in. Yes, please. Actually, just drive over here and tell us. And fuel mileage for the vehicle, like for the front wheel mm-hmm. drive, it's like nineteen miles per gallon, city twenty six highway. So, I mean, some of that's aero, some of that's weight, some of that's an older V6 engine. It's 296 horsepower, by the way. I, I double-checked that. And it's an 8-speed automatic. So it's, it's, it's a fine Almost mechanical package, but just don't expect it to be thrifty or super fast, which is, which okay. is okay, I think. Now, the, the real question when it comes to driving a minivan, did it, I, and even an SE model, did it ever feel cool? No, never. Not no. once. Never. I felt so uncool the entire time. But you know what? I learned to drive on a minivan. My the vehicle I drove the most when I was at, like 16 years old was a 1993 Pontiac Transport in full teal and it had the full anteater grill too. That was before they shortened the front end of that. It had like the full like dustbuster wedge. Yeah, so, it's the wedgiest wedgiest van of all time. You might say I'm a bit of a minivan aficionado, and I was never cooler than when I was driving that car around my hometown, blasting music and thinking I was a total badass. And so now the when you whenever you do drive a, a minivan again. It it reminds you of your youth. It fills me saying. with shame. Is I guess oh. what I'm saying. <laughs> Do you have any good road trip like minivan stories or or memories? I'm I'm sure that almost everybody of our generation probably has grown up in a minivan of some kind. Probably well, my, actually, when I was a kid, my my family had wagons, so okay. I had lots of great wagon stories, like big Ford Mercury wagons with 460 cubic inch V8 engines, uh, silently ticking along on the back roads going to Maine. But um, in terms of minivan stories, I can remember there's two stories that that stand out. One was uh, I had loaded the van with so many friends that they had to stand up inside the van in addition to sit down in order for everyone to fit. And we went around a corner and the whole van leaned to one side like it was going to tip over. And everyone (laughs) had to shift their weight to the other side (laughs) to bring the van back down to the road. So that was terrifying. But uh, the other the other memory I have is I was coming back. I, I grew up near Vermont, near the Vermont border in southern Quebec. And we would sometimes just go to Vermont. It was like 20 miles away to, you know, shop or get go ha- have lunch or something at restaurants we didn't have in my small town. And uh, we were coming back on the highway, uh, me and a friend. And I saw another friend up ahead in his vehicle. He had a BMW 3 Series at the time. So yeah. I pulled up beside him and I had an audio cassette that I, a mixtape that I had made that I wanted to give to him. Yeah. So I pulled up beside him on the highway and my friend who was with me rolled down the window and we got really close and my friend leaned out and handed him the tape and he took the tape and then drove off. What, <laughs> what I didn't know was that his mother was in the passenger seat <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> I hadn't seen her. And, uh, well, after he had done this and we had driven off, she was very quiet. And then she looked over at him and said, so this is what you boys do, eh? (laughs) And I've always loved that story. Uh, the shenanigans of a minivan owning youth. What a wild Uh, time it is to grow up in rural Quebec. (laughs) 
So if you were to uh, – first of all, I don't know I, – I can't – I've never heard of Toyota suggesting that a new gener- a next generation Sienna is coming out. We've never seen any spy photos of it. I've never heard them hinting at it. There's never been a, uh, like, a, like a teaser image for an upcoming auto show of a, mini, of a new minivan. Do you think there's a next generation Sienna coming? And what do they need to do besides lowering the – price point of this thing i mean i don't see why they wouldn't make another one i'm sure they sell a decent number there's only four minivans on the market five i guess if you count the uh if you count the grand caravan which is a Mm -hmm. very very old design that's competing exclusively on price so Mm -hmm. it's not my favorite minivan as as you know i'm a big fan of the sedona the kia sedona i think it's really cool uh i know i just said minivans aren't cool but the interior of the sedona is amazing uh (laughs) i think that toyota doesn't honestly have to do anything to change this van i think it does Everything it needs to do, I think it has a built-in audience, and I don't think vans are going to be peeling customers away from crossovers or SUVs. That ship has sailed. So they could stay the course and enjoy their uh, return customers or the customers of friends and family who said, oh, my, my, my aunt had a minivan from Toyota, so I'm going to get one too. You know what I mean? Like, I enjoyed mm-hmm. that minivan. I think, this, I think if they went after the Sedona in terms of interior style, it... Are we going to get an even more expensive Sienna? Like yeah. it seems like not a great, not a great plan. But I mean, even with all those features that we were missing, uh, like the stop and go. Uh, I'm sorry, not stop and go adaptive cruise control, but like um, I'm um, sure that feature is available at some point. Or, okay. I'm sure you can get that. Like if you, like I said, I had the SC, which is a mid trim van. It's just expensive for a mid trim van. Right. Okay. So on the high end vans, it has. I'm sure it has all the gear you could want. Okay, there's also another thing that I wanted to talk uh, this week on the podcast, which was the news of a Supra refresh. What is this? What's happening with the with the new Toyota Supra? Okay, well, and- what's happening is if you bought the Supra, the 2020 Supra, you're probably very angry right now. Because for 2021, the Supra is going to have 47 more horsepower. From the same engine. They, what they've done is they've changed the pistons, they've changed the exhaust manifold, it has lower compression, they've retuned it, and now it's at, I think, 383 horsepower, something like that, Sammy? Oh my gosh. Okay, yeah. So the same as, like, essentially the BMW Z4 M. Yeah, it's... it's so, so what happened is everyone who was super excited about a car that was heavily hyped and, and advertised by Toyota as a return to their sports car routes and went out and bought one... Is now being faced with the prospect that I think 10 months later, the company was like, hey, here's a much better version of the car. Sorry you didn't wait. <laughs> like, I, I don't get the, the logic for Toyota doing this, Sammy. I agree. I mean, I don't know why they would make this change so quickly when they could have had it in their back pocket for a couple of years down the line. It's a year or or. I mean, it hasn't even been a year that the Super has been out. It, I think this is the worst part about it. it it's, um, it's the optics of it are very bad. If you're courting an enthusiast base, if you're trying to get enthusiasts engaged about your product, and then you bait and switch them, which is essentially what you've done, that looks like disrespect to your customers. And I, I don't think Toyota was intentionally disrespecting anyone. I'm just talking about how this looks to the market. And if you... There's a bunch of other stuff that's coming for 2021. You're getting the four-cylinder turbo that was available in Europe 
which is fine. Oh, I mean, nice. Good job. So maybe a more affordable, potentially more affordable model. Exactly. You're also getting uh, some special, there's like an A91 edition. It's going to have some special stuff, chassis stuff. I mean, they did do some other suspension upgrades and stuff to the car. That doesn't bother me so much. And and when Toyota was asked why they did this, why they had this huge horsepower bump, they said, well, you know, we want, we want to continuously improve the Supra and we want to make changes every year. It just seems so extreme. And the only... Given that the Z4 had the same amount of power for 2020, which is when the Super was released and that they are on exactly the same platform and have exactly the same drivetrain, the only thing that makes sense to me, Sammy, is that they had a legal agreement between them where BMW said, we will give you our engine technology as long as for the first year we have more power so we can squeeze as many sales out of the Z4 as possible because we know the Z4 is going to be a very short-lived product. (laughs) That's a very interesting thought process you think that bmw uh, neutered this this opportunity for toyota i think it's a possibility i can't think of a logical explanation mm-hmm. other than other than a corporate agreement between the two related to the drive chain sharing i mean what's your opinion why do you think this happened i have i i mean i don't know i have i'm i'm not gonna lie you stunned me with this news before just moments before the podcast uh came out I was surprised that both the um, the six cylinders getting the, the extra horsepower and that we're getting the four cylinder. And I am I'm excited to see how much the four cylinder will cost because I think that's a pretty sweet engine as well, based on all of the BMW products I've driven it. Um, uh, it. It's so interesting to see Toyota adding power to the or or getting more power in the Supra when it's had other products that have been begging. I mean, enthusiasts have been begging. For more horsepower in the 86 for a while now and toyota has ignored them and it seems like nobody was really asking for power in the supra and bam here it comes so i think this is something maybe outside of their um outside of their their authority maybe well, i think i think way it is. so much about the supra has been outside of seemingly outside of toyota's control because i can't yeah. so much about the launch of this product just appears to have been haphazard or not haphazard that's maybe not the right word it just seems like toyota doesn't care like this is a very important heritage product that they farmed out to another Mm -hmm. company to develop and now they're treating the customers who were okay with that with such casual dismissiveness yeah it just seems really strange i don't understand the strategy is the Supra destined to be a ve- also a very limited product? Is this something we're going to see for a couple of years and then it's gone? Because there's just not the corporate will at Toyota to see it through the right way? Yeah. I mean, to me, it's not just the first, the early adopters. It's the early adopters who are, who are enthusiasts. There was a model of the, of the Supra that was called, I think, like the early model or the... Like a special edition. Oh, yeah, like a launch edition or something. A probably. launch edition. And it was a limited run or a limited number. And these pe- these people probably thought that – these buyers probably thought that they were getting something special that maybe might return their value in some case in some way or another. Because, you know, I don't know if you've seen what a last generation Supra costs in the used market. It's insane. Um, but this has completely killed that. Killed that theory that they've got something special. Yeah, you know, it's, it's so honestly, much better. It's baffling, Sammy. It baffling is baffling. is the word I would use. Um, and there's something else I wanted to talk about this week on the podcast. Is it, you, the, is it the listener question? Uh, before the listener question, do we have time? I, I think we should get to the listener question first and then, and then segue. Okay, okay. Let's get into the listener question first. 
Um, you have it there. I don't have it. So we had a, a listener who wrote in who is uh, very interested in the the uh, current Mini Cooper S, which Sammy has driven. And he's waiting to find out uh, about the manual transmission model's availability. But in the meantime, he wanted to ask Sammy specifically, because you've driven this car, how good is the dual-clutch transmission, that the, the automatic that is available with the vehicle? And is it as good in the S as it is in the JCW? Okay. Uh, that's a really good question. The, the JCW has had this dual clutch for a while and, um, now the, the Cooper and Cooper S are getting this opportunity, uh, or getting this, this, this transmission as well. And it is very good. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, I don't know, you know, it's hard to replace a manual with a, with a dual clutch and, and still find the same engagement, but you are, you're talking about, you're getting the benefit of very quick shifts, both up and down shifts. Um, and I think that's what you're looking for with this vehicle. And, I think it's still fun to drive. Compared to other dual clutch transmissions on the market, how, how does it shake out? I think it's pretty. I think it's actually better than some other dual clutch transmissions in its segment. Um, specifically, I'm talking about uh, Veloster, not N, because I don't think the N is manual only. Yeah. But I think Veloster turbos. Um, you used to be able to get them with a dual clutch, and that I think got removed for the second generation model because that's how bad that old dual clutch was. Um, I think it's a very good dual clutch transmission for this uh, class of vehicle, um, and sets sort of a standard for dual clutch transmissions in in hot hatches. Okay, and uh, what was the other thing you wanted to talk about, Sammy? I want to talk about this list of uh, of eighties. Video games that you wrote for Motor Trend, because the it, first of all it 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 brought me back. Um, some of these games I absolutely love, and I'm sure you'd love to talk about them a little bit and your experience with them. Uh, so these are five five games from the '80s that you you described as the best car and racing video games. Um, and I'll run I'll run through them real quick. It's, Light, lightning round. Yes, we haven't Outrun. done a lightning round in so long. Yes. Outrun, which is um, a, an arcade game and a home console game. There's uh, Ivan Stewart's Super Off-Road. There's Spy Hunter. There's Pole Position. And there's a game called Chase HQ. So I want you to, first of all, Outrun is probably my favorite out of all of these games. And it's one of the most interesting games to me because it wasn't always really a racing game. It was a driving game. Uh, and I found that to be a really cool distinction um, between Outrun and some other games of the time. Yeah, and what I also love is Outrun. I actually played it a couple of weeks ago, the new one, the Outrun 2 or whatever it's called. I think it's just called Outrun at this point, the, mm-hmm. the updated one. And it's amazing. Like, it has all sorts of cool stuff where, you you know, you try to impress your passenger. Uh, she tells you to, like, okay, pass cars, okay, drift now. And then the more you do that, the more hearts or points you get. Um, it's just fun to play. And the other thing that was interesting about Outrun when it first came out is, like you said, it wasn't a racing game. And it took you off the track and it put you in Malibu. It put you in the mountains. It put you mm-hmm. on the plains. It gave you a whole bunch of cool places to drive. And that wasn't really something that a lot of other video games were doing at the time. And I'm not sure because I've driven so many different iterations of it over um, the years in the arcade. But did this game sort of invent that sort of like you used to be able to take either a left or a right turn at the end of each stage and you'd kind of make your own way through a through a whole level i thought that was really cool yeah there's actually like five different endings to the game depending on how you got there isn't and, that cool like that's insane for a car a, a game that's this kind of old like kind of 
It's old, man. Like that's- what, What's also crazy is the OutRun team, they went and found roads that they wanted to drive on around the world. And then they, like, very carefully mapped out what those roads looked like digitally. And they took a bunch of photos and they tried to make it as real as possible, which is – this is 1986, right? So the graphics capability was not super high, but they made a huge effort. And they also added selectable driving music, which is really awesome. You could choose the tunes you want to listen to. And that's something that's kind of carried through to arcade games today. So actually I'll – before going into the next game, there's a more modern version of the game. It couldn't be called OutRun. It was called Horizon Chase Turbo, which is on like PC and PS4 and Nintendo Switch. And people have given it some pretty high reviews. It's it's pretty neat looking. I like how so, Horizon Chase Turbo is like if you programmed an AI to pick three words about cars yeah. and yeah. one and one word about geography. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and I can't wait. I can't wait for like Horizon Chase Turbo Shiver Edition. You know, (laughs) are you kidding? It's gonna be plus. It's gonna be. It's gonna be plus. That's the sequel. Uh, Super Off Road was a game that I remember as a kid getting really frustrated with, but as a grown up, was like, I don't know how I couldn't manage this game at all. It was was that isometric. Pardon? It was so much fun. That isometric viewpoint and the steering that was relative to the to the car. Um, and not the where you're sort of like your viewpoint. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, and, and, um, and you could like, first of all, you had to race against three buddies, which is fun. Mm-hmm. But there was always like Ivan Stewart who was like waiting for you so he could beat you in the game. It was very yeah. hard to beat that gold truck. Uh, but you got to uh, pick up a whole bunch of other stuff, like a whole bunch of cash or nitro along the way. And the tracks were always different. And it was, again... A lot of these games stand out because they they weren't just copies of a concept that we'd already seen. I mean, no one had really done this kind of thing before, and mm. it was it was just fun because of that. And then there's Spy Hunter. I'm not actually. I, I've told you this before the podcast started, but Spy Hunter is not a favorite game of mine because there seems to be no end goal to the game. There's no it's survival. Sammy. It's like life. <laughs> you, you keep surviving until you die. That's Spy Hunter is the most existential racing game driving game you'll ever participate in that is that it that's your that's your take on it well, um, what really happened was uh bally midway was supposed to make a 007 james bond game and then that didn't happen they lost the license but they'd already developed so much of the game they were like let's just release a game called spy hunter and uh they they got the cool music from peter gunn that dun, 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 and like that was the big theme i remember playing it on so many different platforms when i was a kid it was a long time actually before i actually saw it in the arcade um mm-hmm. i remember mostly platforms and computers when i was a kid um and then uh pole position believe it or not i have zero experience in pole position i've never played it so I mean, that's plus, my it's pretty guilty. old it's it pretty is ancient, old i think uh, but um, it, it is the template. I mean, that's what all the games in the 80s strove to be after it came out because you had the position of the camera just behind the car, which was a first. You had a realistic track that's actually Fuji Speedway. And the reason they did that was because they wanted people to feel comfortable and familiar with the driving they were doing. So they just assumed that if you were interested in a driving video game, of course you knew what Fuji Speedway was like. And so they measured it out and they created... Um, this particular track and uh the game they made a bunch of pole positions over time uh it's really held up well if you played it in an arcade today you can get put your quarter in and instantly know what to do and i think that that's a kind of naturalness that modern video games sometimes lack because they're so much more complex 
And then finally, you've got this Chase HQ, which as well I have zero experience with. But I'm very – I've been looking at the photos of and the video of – this is a very – it looks very good for its time. This is <laughs> well, a game from the 80s? Yeah, so so Chase HQ is basically cop of the Porsche. So it's like Michael Bay was like, I want to make a video game. <laughs> and and they're like, what happens in the game? And they're like, I don't know, but you're a cop of the Porsche and there's bad guys. And one of the bad guys has a Porsche too. And then everyone was like, ooh, we can do that. But uh, what I remember most about Chase, so Chase HQ, you were supposed to chase down bad guys and girls and slam your car into them until their car caught fire and you arrested them because that's how the age-old way of arresting. People. That's I mean it's time honored. I mean CSI crash into him is a very popular series. Um, but uh, that's our show. What, what I what I remember most about Chase HQ is playing it in the arcade with my best friend. And he would put, we, we would both play. So I would steer and he would have the high low shifter and the mm-hmm. turbo boost button. So he would control how fast we were going and I would steer. And then we would somehow, it was like one away for two kids who had no money to play on one quarter. <laughs> and then we would switch <laughs> positions and it was a lot of fun. And like, you can't really do that with today's video games. Well, old not, school co-op. I love that. Old school. When you're too poor for a quarter, <laughs> this is how you get the most fun out of a game. Um, and yeah. I remember you hunted down, you were in a Porsche 928, and you would go after a Lotus Esprit, a Countach, a 959, a 288 GTO, and then another Porsche, which was red. Do you know if these were, like, li- were they licensed vehicle, or, like, that's just the like- likeness they were no, modeled at? I think that Chase HQ was licensed. I know that um, OutRun was not. No. They had to- until, until later, much later. Yeah. So uh, the the current version that you can find in the arcades right now has a whole mm-hmm. bunch of cool Ferraris you can choose. I mean, there's there was never a convertible Testarossa to begin with. So mm-hmm. they designed a, a car that looked like a convertible Testarossa. It is a Testarossa by all by any other name, and they just went with that. I think Ferrari might have pursued them legally, but uh, nothing. Well, the box art has a Ferrari logo on it. Yeah, don't don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Now, finally, the, the the other thing I want to tell our listeners about is that, believe it or not, Acura has made a sort of web browser video game called uh, Beat This. So you go play beatthis.acura.com, I think it is. Um, and it's this really cool old school or retro um, video game in your um, browser. And I'm really impressed by this. I think this is badass. It has references to, like, Gran Turismo, Ridge Racer, Midnight Run, which are some more modern video games. But it feels kind of old school as well. I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, and you can you can play – did you mention the cars you can play in? Yeah, so I didn't. There's an NSX. There's an NSX. There's an Integra Type R. Uh, there's a – that concept that they revealed a while ago, the something-something. I don't, I don't remember what. It's like a sedan. Type S concept. Yeah, yep. Type S concept. There's a RDX because that's what everyone wants to drive in a video game. And then there's like other cars you can unlock. I think there's a, a modern NSX. There's an NSX racer. There's a bunch of stuff that you can – as you progress through the game. So I, I've seen it played. It's kind of cool. I mean it's fun that someone did that. I think the spirit of it is, is, is really nice. That's cool. Uh, I mean I haven't been – I don't know. I, sh- I just feel like there's a bit more enthusiasm these days and, and joy in, in driving. So – uh, I think that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Ben, can you tell me what we're going to be driving next week? So next week, we're going to be talking about, drumroll please, the Subaru Outback, Sammy, because we've both been driving the Outback and we have some thoughts about it. And also, Sammy is an Outback owner, so he oh, yeah. is a 1,000% biased. <laughs> and I am a past Outback owner, but like I owned one, I owned a 98, so it was a very different time. 
<laughs> Good point. Now, if, if this is the first time you've listened to the podcast, you probably want to know uh, how you can listen to the past episodes or how to subscribe so that you're up to date with all of the new episodes. And to do that, that's very easy. Just go to the website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. Um, and when you're there, you'll see a bunch of buttons to click on that will allow you to subscribe. You can also see our past episodes. You can see photos of the cars that we've been driving and links to the stories that we've written about the cars, which is pretty cool. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do that on the website itself. There is a contact form. You spill that out. You click submit, and it ends up in our inbox, and we read everything that comes our way. There's other ways to get in touch with us, too, though. If you want to do it the old-fashioned way, you can do it with email, benjamin at benjaminhunting.com, or you can find us on social media. Sammy prefers the cesspool that is Twitter. You can find him there at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. And you can find me on Instagram, where everyone's a lot friendlier. It's at huntingbenjamin. So really, guys, send us your questions. We love talking about uh, whatever you're really interested in. And we can't wait to hear from you and talk to you next week. Uh, ben, do you want to finish this up with one more plug for for Code 45? Sure. If you go to code-45.com, you can subscribe to be notified when the Kickstarter campaign goes live on March 3rd. Or go to the Code 45 Facebook page. There's a lot going on there. There's a post every day explaining how the comic got made, what it's about, and the people who are involved. Very cool. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and thanks for checking out Code 45. Bye-bye.